Hey, Assalamu alaikum everybody. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Welcome to, um, is this day two? <laughs> okay. Day two or day three? Yeah, day two. Okay, you know, it's amazing because day one was so full that, <laughs> can you blame me for thinking we actually spent two days on it, but it was really only day two of Surah Al-Anfal, which is incredible. Alhamdulillah, I'm so excited to just jump back in, but let me share with you first a really beautiful message um, that we got. Um, and uh, keep it anonymous, she gave me her um, permission. I'm wholeheartedly grateful for this Tefsir project. It is what I have been searching for my whole life. I actually, um, I had actually been searching for religious education abroad for years, but subhanAllah, I never found the opportunity. It somehow turned out to be for the best because I don't think any scholar or imam abroad would have offered the beautiful Tefsir we are receiving now, alhamdulillah. I'm so grateful to God and for the professor. All of his books and interpretations have strengthened my faith and my relationship with God immensely. I always had questions about my religion, although I never questioned my religion. And since I either couldn't find anyone fluent in English to ask or couldn't get a satisfying English translation of the holy book, I practiced what the professor calls uh, a conscientious pause before I even read the book speaking in God's name. I just want, waited patiently and can, continued to hold on to my questions. After much exhausting research and much du'a for guidance, God had led me to the professor's books, which answered the majority of my questions. I used to be so sad that I couldn't study religion abroad, but I now feel that I am truly fortunate, even more fortunate than those who did get the opportunity to study religion abroad. Alhamdulillah. So that is... Alhamdulillah, thank you so much for sharing that. That's number one. And then number two, I just thought I would share with you um, a really um, fascinating conversation that I actually had with the Sheikh after the last session um, of Surah Al-Anfal. Um, because you know, like one of the things that's the most powerful for me and the most moving for me is when I hear him say, you know, you cannot find this in any tafsir that you read. And that's not just hyperbola. Um, and the, we were talking about that um, and how, you know, how singular and blessed we are to be receiving that. And so we were talking about the methodology because he, you know, I've seen him as a scholar, you know, being married for so many years. I would see, for example, when he was setting out to write his human rights book, which he is still, you know, has been working on for, for decades. But literally, we bought every single book on human rights that was published in English that we could get our hands on that was at all interesting. And he was saying that he read all of them and he reached a point where they started to become repetitive. But the, the methodology and, and the meticulousness of wanting to know every single book or every single idea that had been put out there um, you know, for a particular topic that was how he would approach mastering an area of knowledge as a scholar. And he said that this was a methodology that he learned um, you know, when he was growing up a young scholar. And this was something that was very prevalent um, you know, when he was studying with sheikhs. And just the idea that you have to, in order to have mastery, you have to know what every other person or scholar has said about a particular topic so that you can know what's out there and then build upon that and provide something original. And so I, you know, told him, okay, I really hope we will have an opportunity where you can, you know, further develop this because I think it's a really important um, idea that I don't know, you know, I'm not a scholar, but I, I don't know if that is the approach that people take here and in our time that um, you go to that length to be so meticulous about what you're presenting. Um, but that is what makes this particular tafsir also so powerful. As you know, we've talked about 
you know, in addition to reading every single tefsir he could get his hands on, we, you know, he goes into history, poetry, um, philosophy, you know, ethics, everything. And it's like in order to present what we have here. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. So you might hear a lot of people say, oh, there's nothing like the tefsir. You know, it's like one of those things that we're used to hearing people say as hyperbola, as hyperbola but it really isn't here. And I think that's what makes it so blessed and so special. And, and I'm so grateful that we are here to receive it. So I'm looking forward to another um, amazing session, um, Surah Anfal, and thank you so much for joining us. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa subhanallah al-Aliyya al-Azim. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tabaw bihsanin ila yawm al-Din. Allahumma shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri wa ahlul uqdatan min lisani yafqahu qawli ya Rabbil Alameen. Reached thirty-four. Yeah. Okay. So we know the theme in the Anfal after the victory in Badr um, which as we talked about in its details are is quite a spectacular victory and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Anfal zeroes in on a, a sort of zeroes on the, in on the issue of anfal itself, the issue of uh, material gain, and as we said, that anfal is you know it's uh, any any excess, any windfall. Uh, any extra, and so, and in response to the debate that arose after the Battle of Badr, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in Surah Al-Anfal comes and zeroes in on this issue, and one says, as a principle, understand that this entire debate is inappropriate because as a principle all the anfal belong to Allah and we'll see why this has a a, um, a very practical impact or a practical effect or practical results that it all belongs to Allah and the Prophet and then starts unpacking, as we've discussed, the whole focus on, or the whole attitude towards materialism, material gain, what does it mean to be uh, vested in God's cause, and reorients the focus of the audience or those who the participants in Battle of Badr 
to a core understanding that you are instrumentalities of the divine. Allah is the real power that permeates everything. And in the, the greatest risk after a victory is the risk of arrogance and the risk of losing focus in thinking that, well, now that we put in this effort, now that we've done a great job, let's reap the benefits. Okay. And then, so we've reached towards the um, end where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala underscores that those individuals whose life is led in a reactive mode, Allah likens them to as-summ al-bukm, alladhina la ya'akilun, that they are fundamentally irrational human beings, that they react to impulses in, in the heart, and Allah comes and says, these are the worst type of creatures that tread on the earth. The, those who've been given reason, but do not use it. And that what this message is fundamentally about, is it's about giving you life, giving you meaning, giving you a purpose. And as we said towards the end, that um, Allah underscores that you must understand that to be committed for this cause, in this cause, Allah comes between a human being and their heart, meaning between a human being and their, their impulses. And their um, base desires. And that if you do not think in terms of, in a principled, conscientious fashion, then the biggest risk is uh, that be warned that the consequences of this will not befall just those of you who committed injustice, but in fact the consequences of this, the, the moral collapse in society befalls all of you because you will no longer be able to distinguish between right and wrong as we said last time. All of this is review. Okay. And in 34, I don't remember if I said this, uh, this story towards the very end or not, but notice in, in Ayah 34 that part of the bragging rights of the Meccans, the, the Meccan identity for, uh, for a very long time had formed around the idea that they are the servants of the Kaaba. And in their mythology, they, they had, they had a, 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 
mythological base that this is a structure that was built by the Prophet Ibrahim and the Prophet Ismail. But of course, the monotheism of the Prophet Ibrahim and Ismail السلام, had been, become grossly corrupted. And so in 34, Allah underscores that you are not awliya al-bayt. Wilayat al-bayt, meaning being the servants of the holy sites, is not a matter of, of entitlement. It's not an investiture. Uh, it is not a matter of I uh, inherited this position, and so that makes me the servant of the holy sites. Uh, it's in in awliya'uhu illa al-muttaqoon. ولكن أكثرهم لا يعلمون that the, the guidance or, or the ولاية uh, البيت uh, uh, taking care of the holy sites having that status is according to taqwa according to if in our language today we'd say according to your moral ethical character not an entitlement and then in 35, The Meccans, as they would go around the Kaaba, well, we know that they, they required uh, that you purchase fresh clothes and you had to buy the clothes from the vendors around the Kaaba. So you could not go around the Kaaba unless you buy clothes from the vendors around the Kaaba. And if you couldn't afford to buy the clothes, then you circumambulated around the Kaaba nude. And what they also did is that they would whistle and clap. They wouldn't they, they had a, a supplication that they would say um, uh, as they circumambulated, but but mostly what you would hear as people are going around the Kaaba is whistling and clapping. And in 35, as you notice that Allah points out that that's nothing. Of course, there is a moral point to this. And unfortunately, a moral point that had not it was developed in the very early period of Islamic history. You find, uh, but it, like the whole idea of shura, like the concept of khilafah and bay'ah, there are certain things that went awry in Islamic history, and scholars would sort of lament the fact that they went awry, but they would largely sort of move on to a more pragmatic undertaking. And that is the, the moral quality of who takes charge of wilayat al-haramin, the moral quality of those who are in charge of serving the holy sites. Since there was no... Um, there was no process by after the first um, first by, by the time the rise of the Umayyad dynasty, 
there was we can we can talk about sort of a primitive process of the community being involved in nominating the most pious, the most ethically respected to be in charge of different functions of serving the holy sites. But by the rise of the Amawad Empire, um, it has become a matter of whoever is in power. They, But even then, one of the interesting things about Wilayat Mecca and Medina is that even during the Amawad period, the first Islamic dynasty and the Abbasid period, the second Islamic dynasty, and even during the collapse of the Abbasid dynasty, Mecca and Medina were always given a considerable amount of autonomy and self-governance. Eventually, what sort of settles in in the idea of uh, finding um, that Wilayat al-Bayt becomes the, the charge of those who are believed to be descendants of Al al-Bayt. So, and the Ashraf, as they were called. And but it took many centuries before that even that practice developed. And eventually, especially during the Ottoman period, the idea was that the Ottomans recognized a considerable amount of self-governance and autonomy for Mecca and Medina and put many of the issue of the serving the holy sites in the hands of the Ashraf, the, the, those believed to be the descendants of uh, Ali al-Bayt. But, and, and the history of Mecca and Medina, by the way, is very poorly written. And if you try to research it, you will have a very hard time because you will not find a lot of um, scholarship, modern scholarship. And, and it's remarkable because if you compare the amount of work that exists on the history of Rome uh, or the amount of work generated about the history of Jerusalem after the creation of Israel, uh, largely by Israeli scholars, largely for the Western world, most of what has been written about the history of Jerusalem has been written by Jewish scholars and Christian scholars. And Muslim scholars, uh, you know, they're on the margin. Um, there is some, but not, again, not a critical mass. Mecca and Medina is even worse. The, the, there is a huge gap in the history of Mecca and Medina. But the point that I'm making that even the, the most, would you say, um, prominent dynasties of Islam always recognize that Mecca and Medina have a special status. And Wilayat al-Bayt, there was a, always an effort, regardless of how corrupt or secular uh, a dynasty was, there was always a recognition that Wilayat al-Bayt must be put in the hands of um, those who at least were morally respected within Mecca and Medina. Otherwise, you could confront a rebellion by Mecca and Medina, which uh, most Islamic empires would always try to avoid because it was extremely bad PR. 
which allowed, as I said before, Mecca and Medina to be, and the Hejaz area in general, for most of Islamic history, to be extremely culturally diverse um, and to be sort of the, the, the place of refuge for uh, all types of scholars, even um, activists that you know were, were had run afoul of the of uh, whoever the, the governing authority was in, in Iraq and in Egypt and in, in North Africa and so on and they would go take refuge in Mecca and Medina. And then in the age of modernity we, we of course witness a huge shift to a nationalistic paradigm in the the creation of the Saudi state, the Saudi state initially, uh, when Najd def- takes over Hejaz, because the Saudi state was the, uh, initially a Najdi state, that that was the genesis of the Saudi state, and initially there in there is a very famous conference that the Najdis hold and they promise the Muslim world that um, the administration of the Hejaz will not be a Najdi matter and that the administration of the Hejaz will be in the collective hands of Muslims so that the traditional roles, because different Muslim societies would play different roles, well-defined historically roles in the service, in, in, in serving Mecca and Medina, and so they would feel vested. Um, that, of course, that promise was eventually for completely forgotten and the caring of Mecca and Medina became a completely nationalistic issue, meaning the nation state monopolized all decisions about Mecca and Medina, which is unprecedented in Islamic history. Um, you know, a, a sign of health or ill health is how much Muslim scholars in a particular age or particular epoch have written about the Quran. We've written in the modern age, we've written much more about Hadith than we have about the Quran, which is is extremely telling, immediately extremely telling. Um, and how much they've written about Mecca and Medina, because the, that's the heart and core. And in my opinion, Jerusalem was always a thermometer of either the how the, the, the how badly the Ummah is doing or how good the Ummah is doing. Um, you know, in our in the darkest periods of the Islamic Ummah, Muslims lose control of Jerusalem. In the in the best periods, they they are in control of Jerusalem. Um, which speaks volumes. But of course, again, you see here in the Quran that expression, it is not a matter of entitlement that you claim that you are the guardian of the holy sites. Um, and not a matter of just you know, dictating your will by, by power or whatever. Okay, let's move on.
אוקיי. I don't want to apologize this at this long, but notice at 36, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا يُنْفِقُونَ أَمْوَالَهُمْ لِيَصُدُّ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ سَيُنْفُقُونَهَا ثُمَّ تَكُونُ عَلَيْهِمْ حَسْرَةً ثُمَّ يُغْلَبُونَ وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا إِلَى جَهَنَّمَ يُحْشَرُونَ لِيَمِيذَ اللَّهُ الْخَبِيثَ مِنَ الطَّيِّبِ وَيَجْعَلُ الْخَبِيثَ بَعْضَهُ عَلَى بَعْضٍ فَيَرْكُمُ جَمِيعًا فَيَجْعَلُهُ فِي جَهَنَّمَ أُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْخَاسِرُونَ This is 36 and 37. That, this is extremely interesting because right after bed, this prediction that Mecca will spend... an enormous amount of money to fight a losing battle. This is part of, you know, the, the things that are predictions in the Quran that could not have come from a human author, that they, they will in fact spend a considerable amount of money, as indeed they did eventually, and Ultimately, it will be for nothing. At the end, their, the, the destiny or what, what will inevitably happen is that it will, they will lose. They will be defeated. Which... is a theme in the Quran that is in Surah Al-Anfal and several other places. Let's see how Muhammad Asad translates. 37. So, okay. The, while Allah, the way we can understand these ayat in retrospect, after the fact, is that while Allah has destined, has decreed that Mecca will be defeated, of course the recipients of the Quran at the time weren't quite, you know, they speculated, is Allah just talking about Badr? Is it possible that someday we will actually, the idea of someday that they will actually conquer Mecca was completely alien to them. It, it didn't exist in the Muslim consciousness at that point. But nevertheless, the Quran predicts the ultimate defeat of the Meccans. And then, but why the unfolding events of tests like Badr, like Uhud, so that Allah will differentiate between those who rise So Allah's destiny and Allah's will, whatever Allah has destined, is completely unknown to us. And since we don't receive revelation anymore, even the little bit about how what Allah has decreed for the world that existed, that was revealed in the Quran, is no longer accessible to us. But... So we can't say whether Allah has, has predestined 10%, 20%, 50%, 90%. This is completely unknown to us. 
what exactly has Allah predestined of human affairs is an unknown. But we, the battles must be fought, the actions must be taken for Allah to differentiate between al-khabith min al-tayyib, the good from the bad. So it is the test that differentiates. It is the test that differentiates for Allah and the test that differentiates for us. So you yourself don't know whether you are among the khabith or among the tayyib until you go through the test. Until you are tested, you simply have a delusion about the self. But it is the test that actually reveals the self to the self. Now, if you realize I ran away in battle, I am among the Khabith, or I made an excuse not to join battle, or all I cared about after battle are the spoils, the material gain, then if you have a brain in your skull, then you say, I have work to do to change. That is the entire challenge of Surah Al-Anfal. Are you Khabith or are you Tayyib? Notice that the Prophet himself didn't go around saying to people after Badr and even after Uhud, even after Uhud, you are Khabith, you are Tayyib. Allah tells the Prophet in Surah Al-Amran, if you remember, that there are hypocrites. Allah knows them. You don't know them, but Allah knows them. And Allah doesn't tell the Prophet who they are. But the challenge is offered for each person to make that discernment himself or herself. So the criteria for ethical failure or uprightness is whether you ran away from battle, whether you are focused on the spoils, whether it's so on and so forth, is a deeply introspective inquiry into the self. Okay. لِيَمِيز and in بعض القراءات ليميز but it depends on the Qur'an ليميز الله الخبيث من الطيب ويجعل الخبيث بعضه على بعض and then Allah the image of Allah putting the bad upon the bad فَيَرْكُمُهُ it's a very interesting image it's as if Allah tests evil, vets evil, with evil. It's, and it, it's as if evil feeds upon evil. And as it says elsewhere in the Quran that what ultimately, what remains is what is good for human beings, what ultimately survives or what has value. 
survival value, real value, is what is moral and what is good. But in Surah Al-Anfal, Allah says, evil upon evil, and then يَرْكُمُهُ literally, um, say, uh, Muhammad Asad translates it, and link them all together within his condemnation, within Allah's condemnation, and then place them in hell. They are lost. They are the lost. Yarkumuhu um, could mean that when evil is placed upon evil, they become interlinked, and they all become. They all end up in hellfire. Yarkumu, however, a lot of a lot of mufassirun and ones that I agree with understood Arraq not as interlinked as Muhammad Asad translates it, but that it will ultimately be just literally just jutted out, like you know, evil builds upon evil, and then Allah picks it up and just tosses it, and. And sort of an image of how valueless, how the, the utter lack of value, the utter lack of meaning, the utter lack of substance, as Al Khabith accumulates upon Al Khabith. Okay. Then, so, yet, remind people, and this, this is now 38. That still, if you come back, Allah will forgive you. If you don't, Madat Sunnatul Awaleen literally means uh, there have been so many who have refused to repent, and Madat Sunnatul Awaleen, Allah's Sunnah in creation. Is ultimately enforceable. In in the in other words, it's like saying, and if you refuse to come back, well, you'll come to know how astray you are. It, it, it will all unfold before your eyes. وقاتلهم حتى لا تكون فتنة ويكون ويكون الدين كله لله. This is now 39. So, fight, fight them. Muhammad Asa translates that fight against them until there is no oppression and all worship is devoted to God alone. Now, the, 
in Surat Al-Anfal, recall that in the Battle of Badr, Muslims are still at the very beginning of their experience. And what is it that the that the Meccans are doing? Meccans, their their primary cause against the Muhajirun and the Ansar, against Muslims at this point, is that they want to exterminate them. They do not allow within their ranks people to become Muslim. They persecute whoever is Muslim. So translating fitna here as persecution or as oppression is, is exactly correct. That the, the reason you are fighting them is to end oppression, to end the state of persecution. Now, we know that the Quran repeatedly tells us that even as regardless of how much you want, people will never become all Muslim or all believers. And Allah even says, that regardless of what you do, it will never be the case that all people will become Muslim or believers. So all the early Quranic commentaries, commentators, when they came to this expression, he said, well, it cannot be understood as end oppression so everyone will in fact become Muslim or will become a mu'min because the Quran itself says that's not what is going to happen. So they understood it in its natural linguistic meaning, end oppression so that everyone will have the opportunity to become a believer. Later, Quranic commentators, influenced by the, the law of the age of war of all against all, unless there is a treaty, And not even, not even you can't even say a consensus or even a majority, but a considerable number of commentators writing centuries later said, in principle, we the the in principle the purpose of a Muslim ruler or the the the, the way that they understood or the the um, the um, the principle that they wanted to uphold is that in principle, a Muslim ruler must aspire to bring the entire world to Islam. 
which is very different than the way it was initially understood right after the Battle of Badr. In other words, in, in their mind, that a Muslim ruler in principle would say, I am in a state of war for all against war, all, as international law used to be, not to become rich, not to become all-powerful, but to spread Islam. Unless that presumption is overtaken by an actual agreement. And as I said before, that natural law changed with the birth of the modern age and the United Nations before the United Nations, the League of Nations, which was a failure, and the birth of the, of, um, uh, the United Nations Charter, which is a massive treaty, basically, where all countries say, agree not to use force in principle, but as we all know that the powerful uses force anyway, you know, whenever they wish. But that understanding is, a, a, is an imperial understanding that, that is a result of the actual practice of nations centuries later after Islam, after Muslim had actually built an empire. But after Surah Badr, after, sorry, after the Battle of Badr, the way that it was understood is fight them so that their persecution will end, so that those who wish to become Muslim and join you may do so. And that's why Muhammad Asa translates it the, the way he does, which is correct. Fight them, there's no more oppression, and all worship is devoted to God alone. And then, let's see what he says. Uh, just, oh, he just says in a footnote, um, yeah, until people are free to worship God, which is, yeah, exactly correct. And that is why, notice, this is bolstered by the ayah right after it, 40. That, now, if they turn away, then know that your reliance is on Allah. In, in other words, it, the context itself underscores that people will turn away. And it doesn't tell you, and so if they turn away, go after them and coerce them. And we also know in Surah Al-Baqarah, it says, etc., etc. That there is no compulsion in religion, and we've covered that in Surah Al-Baqarah. All right. Now, remember the theme is about the attitude towards material gain. Why are you fighting? Why did you, why did you engage in this battle? So then Allah returns back to the issue of fear, the issue of spoils. After establishing the principle that it all belongs to God and the Prophet, then says, وَعَلَمُوا أَنَّمَا غَنِمْتُمْ مِنْ شَيْءٍ 
فأن لله خمسه وللرسول ولذي القربة واليتامى والمساكين وابن السبيل إن كنتم آمنتم بالله وما أنزلنا على, عبدنا على عبدنا يوم الفرقان يوم التقى الجمعان والله على كل شيء قدير This is 41 Now understand that one-fifth of whatever you gain from war. There is a debate in Islamic jurisprudence that becomes extended as to, well, does, when it says, so it the, the, the expression whatever you earn so does this rule extend beyond the spoils to all types of earnings that one-fifth is dedicated to the expenses of the Prophet Qurba and the family of the Prophet Waliatama and orphans Masakin and the poor Wabn Sabil Ibn Sabil as we said is like the refugee or a displaced human being. So why did Allah start out by saying well it all belongs to Allah and the Prophet and in the Islamic tradition, of course, that's something that there's a lot of discussion on. And to sum it up, is that one-fifth is an entitlement, and one-fifth is immediately dedicated for these purposes. To take care of orphans, the destitute, um, the refugee, etc., etc. However, because in principle, the surah starts out by saying that all the spoils are for Allah and the Prophet, after the Prophet, the Khalifa returned the right, or in Islamic law, they gave the Khalifa the right to in their discretion, increase the percentage of entitlement for those identified. And there is a long discussion in Islamic jurisprudence that the Khalifa, in principle, if they were following the law, that they are not allowed to increase the amount of money that goes to the Khalifa himself, but they are allowed to increase the amount of the percentage for public expenditures. Um, they may not decrease it, but they may increase it. The practice of the Prophet anyone that has read in the Sira knows the, the, the painful stories of um, how the, the Prophet would spend days with nothing to cook, sometimes with nothing to eat in his household. We also know, as we'll talk about later, that at one point his his family 
his wives um, rebel and you know say we, we, we have nothing. Uh, everyone around us has more than we do. And that is because of what was given of the one-fifths that in principle was supposed to go to the Prophet it was well known that this one-fifth, whatever went to the Prophet, he gave to Ahl al-Ruqqa, the, uh, the, the um, uh, homeless folks that lived around his home in the Masjid al-Haram. So in, in the Masjid in Medina, as we talked about before, there's a, a whole group of people that don't come from, many of them are um, without a tribe. They're Mawali. Uh, converts, former slaves, um, uh, non-Arabs, uh, some from Arabs that had, uh, from tribes that have become extinct, uh, some from tribes that are, uh, remained extremely hostile to Islam, and so they're literally tribalists. And so a, a lot of these people who are quite destitute, and many of them don't have homes, they, as I've said before, live around the Prophet ﷺ in, in, in the Masjid in Medina itself, in sort of uh, quarters that were prepared for them. And they become dedicated students of the Quran. A lot of what they do most of the time is study the Quran. Whatever the Prophet ﷺ received, his share would go to them. That's one. Second, it was well known that anyone that would knock at the Prophet's door and ask for help, if the Prophet ﷺ had anything, he would give it to them. It was so well known that we'll talk about this later, that, that his, his wives got irritated by the fact that people constantly, the minute the people would hear that something entered the Prophet's household, there would be a constant flow of though, and he would never turn anyone away, even if, even when he knew that a number of the people who came were actually hypocrites. Um, in other words, people who withdrew in the Battle of Uhud, people who were had were, had a close relationship with Abdullah ibn Ubayy, so uh, people who were rumored to have hidden money, to have actually have hidden their wealth, nevertheless, he would never turn anyone away. So nothing of what the Prophet received, he kept. We'll talk about the, the rebellion of his household later. That is also why when he dies, there's no inheritance. There's nothing to inherit. Now, what percentage actually entered his home that he would then give away, that's a very complicated issue. I mean, it's highly debated, but it's a very small percentage of the one-fifths. The vast majority of the one-fifths would go to the poor, the orphans, and 
the wayfarer or the refugee, in our, by our modern terminology. During the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, that percentage was never increased. But after the death of the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Bakr needed greater expenditures for the wars, the so-called Harub al-Ridda or the apostasy wars. Omar ibn al-Khattab decided that there was a famine during his time and so he wanted needed more expenditures to take care of the poor. Imam Ali also needed expenditures confronted with a number of um, uh, uh, challenges to his rule. So each Khalifa confronted the practical need to raise the amount from one-fifth to more than one-fifth. And so it was in Islamic jurisprudence while you will find a great deal of exhortation, warning to khulafa often ignored, not to spend on their own luxury, but that they may, because in principle it all belongs to the state, which effectively stood for Allah and the Prophet, that they may, for good cause, increase the amount from one-fifth in Islamic, uh, this is another thing uh, from the Surat Al-Anfal. Um, in the Shi'i tradition, instead of the one-fifths going to the state, it went to those that were considered to have replaced the authority of the Prophet which which were the Imma. Uh, and and this uh, this in fact um, allowed the the religious establishment the the fiqhi establishment in Shia Islam to survive, although often without the involvement of the state. What a lot of Sunnis do not know is that there was. For there is a very strong Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi opinion that beyond the bare necessity, one fifth of your income must go for Islamic causes. Now, of course, in Sunni Islam, the reason that becomes an opinion that is sort of forgotten is because Sunni Muslims were mostly in power for, you know, in the entire pre-colonial era. And they said, well, the state collects taxes from us. And since the state collects taxes and the state then spends on the military, spends on the orphans, spends on the poor, why should we have an obligation of paying the one-fifth. We pay our taxes. And so eventually that one-fifth opinion 
became merely a moral exhortation that if you are rich, then if you are a good human being, you would give one-fifth of your wealth for uh, to Allah and his prophet, meaning to the, the religious purposes. When the Muslim state collapsed with the advent of colonialism, when the Muslim state collapsed, the attempts of Sunni jurists to rekindle or bring back the ethic of one-fifth to Allah and his prophet was largely unsuccessful because the state, the, new, the, the state that replaced the religious state, although secular in Muslim countries, insisted on monopolizing religious spaces. So the state said, well, if you give money to the Alqaf, go ahead, give it to the Alqaf, but we control the Alqaf. We appoint the imams in masjids. We decide what goes to orphans or in orphanages. We decide how many orphanages are built or not built. We decide how many hospitals are built or not built. So although the secular state was secular, but it still insisted in controlling the religious space. And so the attempts of Sunni scholars in the wake of colonialism to say, well, now, listen, the, the state is controlled by the French, controlled by the British, controlled by the Dutch. Um, so you, the money that the state takes from you in taxes cannot be considered, cannot satisfy your religious obligation. So it is time for us to bring back the principle of one-fifths. So give one-fifths to Allah and his prophet pretty much went nowhere because of the, the aggressiveness of the secular state in controlling religious space. Put differently, the secular state did not want private spending on religion. Because the secular state saw discretionary private spending on religion as inherently dangerous to the secular state. And that's why most Sunnis grow up never having even the foggiest notion that so many scholars in the past said beyond your bare necessities, one-fifth of what you own belongs to Allah and the Prophet. Meaning, you give it to the orphans, you give it to the masakin, you give it to the to refugees, you give it to uh, religious education, you give it to religious purposes. Okay. Then, so now, Muslims were told it is 
It is not a matter of of whoever. Remember the last the halakha I talked about. The the rule was that whoever fights a battle, whatever they can carry, are theirs. Well, Surat Al-Anfal came and abrogated the rule completely in in the, the traditional rule of war and basically said whatever spoils of war exists, you can't take anything and just walk away with it. You have to basically, it has to be submitted to a the a, a, a the public ownership and then d- distributed after the fact, so it ended the rule of pillaging. In our modern mind, we don't understand today what's the significance of that. But historically, when the Quran came and said, "No more pillaging." It was a radical shift in the mores and practices of people of the time. You you couldn't just, whatever you take, you had to turn into the public treasury. And then the public treasury would distribute, would say, okay, one-fifth goes to the Masakin, etc., etc., and then the public treasury would decide the shares of everyone else. Notice that although Surat al-Anfal decreed the law, there was a failure in the Battle of Uhud. Because for centuries, people were accustomed. And among the, 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 the... time-honored evil practices of warriors was that you get to pillage. A warrior looked forward, if they survived, to whatever they can pillage. But after Surat al-Infal, and there is a lot of hadith about this, by the way, that if you pocket anything if you simply, in, in, you know, you, you've defeated a people, and so you find, let's say, um, anything that you like, and you pocket it, you have stolen. That became robbery. That was a radical legal change in a trajectory. Put it bluntly, it was the beginning of the process of civilizing the practices of warfare. Okay. Then Allah goes back to the fundamental and basic moral issue and says, Allah knows this is now 42. Okay, so this is Muhammad Asad. Let's see. So Muhammad, okay, that's good. Remember the day when you were at the near the end of the valley. 
This is the valley of Badr. And they were at its farthest end while the caravan was below you. And if you had known that a battle was to take place, you would indeed have refused to accept the challenge. Muhammad Asad actually got it right. Yeah. But the battle was brought about nonetheless so that God might accomplish a thing which God willed to be done. So, Remember, understand, that day Allah knows that so many of you, although they didn't say that, they didn't say it out, out aloud, they didn't go and tell this to the Prophet, but many of you were hoping that this is going to be a small raid. You were going to raid the caravan, minimum amount of danger. You know, you, you, you show up to this caravan, probably the people that are guarding the caravan will not even put up a fight. And many of you were hoping, and that many of you panicked when it turned out that you are in fact not going to raid the caravan, but you are going to fight a full-scale battle Muhammad's Asad's translation is what I think is right that if indeed you knew from beforehand that you are heading to a major battle many of you would have failed The people who say that the that the Prophet and the companions intentionally leaked the information to Abu Sufyan to the caravan so it can get away often rely on this verse in support of that narrative. They say that the Prophet knew that this is what Allah wanted. The Prophet knew that there had to be a showdown between Muslims and Mecca. That Mecca was gearing up and building an army to invade Medina and destroy Muslims. And that the prophet knew that if he would have, at this stage, told people, listen, we're going to go out to confront the Meccan army, that many people would have failed the test. And that the purpose was not the caravan. The purpose was to force a showdown with Mecca before Mecca had the opportunity to invade Medina. On the other hand, and I'm, I'm not sure which is the correct historical narrative because both sides you know, have their own evidence. Those who say, well, no, because if the Prophet knew that, um, 
he would have better prepared for this battle. But it's hard to understand or hard to imagine how could he have been better prepared. I mean, they came out with everything they owned, and they didn't own much. Nevertheless, what the Quran is reminding Muslims of is that you plan, but understand that you are planning in the context. If you truly rely on Allah, then you must understand that ultimately it is in Allah's hands. It's precisely what Ali Amran comes and reminds him of even in a, in a more stark fashion that if you would have tried to think through the unfolding of events and that such a small group of you would in fact go out in Badr and confront the Meccan army and defeat. So as long as you are with Allah, Allah is with you and Allah's will unfolds in you. If your attention becomes geared towards fear, material gain, then you've let go of Allah and Allah is no longer with you. Then it, you've entered into a completely different dynamic. That, and then Allah underscores this and says, إِذْ يُرِيكُمُ اللَّهُ فِي مَنَامِكَ قَلِيلًا إِذْ يُرِيكُمُ اللَّهُ فِي مَنَامِكَ قَلِيلًا وَلَوْ أَرَاكُهُمْ كَثِيرًا لَفَشِلْتُمْ وَلَتَنَازَعْتُمْ فِي الْأَمْرِ this is 43. So, that Allah's interventions, you often, and this is, this is uh, something for us to understand, that often we ask, where is Allah's interventions? Well, Allah's, Allah's interventions is in your heart, is in your psychology. That Allah effective your, affected your subjective perception of the reality. You looked at them and you didn't see the real numbers. You didn't lose heart in our language today. You didn't see the obstacles as insurmountable and impossible. Allah gave you the courage to say, we can do this. And although you don't realize it, but this in Allah facilitating things, including your own psychology. Now, Allah could put the right thoughts in your heart. Allah could put the right attitude in your heart. But when we say you allow shaitan to come in, come in, it's when you, although Allah has put the right material in your heart, you've defeated it with your doubt. That is something we do all the time. Allah puts us, you know, we on the right track. We are optimistic. We have nice thoughts. We have a nice attitude. We are full of optimism. Yes, we're going to go achieve this. We're going to do this. We're going to serve Allah. And then shaitan and the whisperings of shaitan comes in. And the doubts. Well, how about this person did this? This person said that. This person did this. This person said that. 
well, I don't know if this is the right path. I don't know that. And suddenly, all the, the perfume, the light, the perfume of divinity, the light of divinity vanishes. And then you sit there, Malum and Mahsura. You sit there and say, why did it go so badly? Well, it went so badly because you, you opened the gates to shaitan. How many relationships we enter into and at the beginning, ah, oh, we're together and you know, we want to serve Allah, we want to be together for the sake of Allah. And then the whisperings come in. Yeah, but, you know, this person, what if they snore too loudly and I can't sleep well? I don't know, I'm using a stupid example, you know. The whisperings of shaitan. And the whisperings of shaitan is what removes the barakah. And if you are honest with yourself, you know when the barakah is there. And you know when the barakah is gone. And the barakah is gone is not because Allah took it away, it's because you took it away. You've opened the doors to shaitan and you've allowed shaitan to chase the barakah that Allah has facilitated in your life away. Now, yeah, now 45. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, idha laqiyutum fi'atan fathbitu. وَذْكُرُوا اللَّهَ كَثِيرًا لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ As simple and as straightforward in a qara'a fathbutu there's qara'atin there's several qara'at for it but anyway fathbutu or fathbutu as simple as that if you are put to the challenge, confronted by the host, now the host, of course, a fi'a, and the expression fi'a is remarkable, because it's, say, it's, it's as if saying, if you are confronted by, by, by any fi'a, any host, any challenger, fathbitu, or fathbutu, Stand firm. And it doesn't tell you for stand firm and fight, for stand firm and be brave or was kathira. And remember Allah constantly. So look at the orientation of the victor after the victory. It's like saying you want to know the secret of how you have Allah with you in battle? Is constant dhikr in battle. That's why in Adab al Jihad, if Among the things, I mean, I, people like uh, Daesh or ISIS have committed a lot of atrocities, and, but, but among the things that tells you where their hearts and mind were, were is that 
whatever they claim, they wanted to establish the Khilafah and they claim to be fighting for the Khilafah. But the fact that after the initial early victories, they were not preoccupied with zikr, they were preoccupied by spoils, enslaving human beings and distributing beauty and that is a sure mark that Allah will not aid you and will not support you. وَأَطِيعُوا اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ وَلَا تَنَازَعُوا فَتَفْشَلُوا وَتَذْهَبَ رِيحُكُمْ وَاصْبِرُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ مَعَ الصَّابِرِينَ وَلَا تَكُونُوا كَالَّذِينَ خَرَجُوا مِنْ دِيَارِهِمْ بَطَرًا وَرِئَاءَ النَّاسِ وَيَوَصُدُّونَ عَنْ سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ بِمَا يَعْمَلُونَ مُحِيطٌ وَإِذْ زَيَّنَ لَهُمُ الشَّيْطَانُ أَعْمَالَهُمْ وَقَالَ لَا غَالِبَ لَكُمُ الْيَوْمَ مِنَ النَّاسِ وَإِنِّي جَارٌ لَكُمْ فَلَمَّا تَرَاءَتِ الْفِئَتَانِ نَقَصَ عَلَى عَقِبَيْهِ وَقَالَ إِنِّي بَرِيءٌ مِنْكُمْ إِنِّي أَرَى مَا لَا تَرُونَ إِنِّي أَخَافُ اللَّهِ وَاللَّهُ شَدِيدُ الْعِقَابِ This is 40, 46-47-48 Perseverance and constant remembrance of Allah. And then the third underscored point. وَلَا تَنَازَعُوا فَتَفْشَلُوا وَتَذْهَبَ رِيحُكُمْ The orientation towards dunya after Badr of some by focusing on the issue of spoils. The risk in Allah with the, of, of, of one sure way to lose Allah's blessings is that instead of being focused on what unites you, and what unites you is dhikrillah, the remembrance of Allah is what unites you. But if you start thinking about material gain, then what will inevitably follow is التنازل والفشل وذهاب الريح. These three. تنازل meaning that you will start fighting. الفشل that you will indeed fail. وذهاب الريح is an it's an idiomatic expression meaning that you will become without power, without weight. Zahaburrih meaning it's like the wind being taken out of you. So th this is 46. Muhammad Asas put, uh, translates it, and pay heed unto God and the apostle, and do not allow yourselves to be at variance, uh, uh, to, disagree, to, to fight with one another at variance with one another lest you lose heart and your moral strength would desert you which is actually a good translation and be patient in adversity for fairly God is with those who are patient in adversity so the danger 
in losing sight about why you are struggling in Allah's cause, i.e., if you become focused on material things, what you're, how much you're making, what you're making, what you're gaining materially, is invariably, inevitably, there will be tanazah. There will be fighting. You will splinter apart over egotistical issues. And when that happens, moral defeat will be inevitable. For, this is 47. And be not like those unbelievers who went forth from their homelands full of self, self-conceit and desire to be seen and praised by men, for they were trying to turn others away from the path of God. The wild God encompassed all their doings with God's might. So 47 and 48, I think Muhammad's asset translation is probably very, is very good. Uh, do not be, so now Allah is, is reminding them of a contrast. Your opponents, what the motivating factor in your opponent's actions was bragging rights, prestige, and appearance. What they cared about is what the Arabs are going to say about them as they went out to battle. And ultimately, what their cause was is to oppress people, to prevent people from exercising the right to seek God if they wish to do so. What they do not realize is that their partner in in this motivation was shaitan. And so this is 48. I'm underscoring this because it's a critical part of the moral education of Muslims after Badr. So not material gain. And, and we often read it, but Allah is not just talking about warfare. Allah is talking about any struggle in which you seek or not seek Allah. If what you care about are material things, gain, wealth, if what you care about is prestige, social position, social stature, appearance, reputation, then Allah is not part of the equation. And indeed, in all likelihood, what becomes your partner in your endeavor is shaitan. And whenever shaitan enters anything, the earmark of shaitan 
is the vanishing of tranquility, peace, and repose, and consternation, and anger, and, and grievance. That is the earmark of the presence of shaitani influences. In our modern language, bad energy. Okay. 49. ومن يتوكل على الله فإن الله عزيز حكيم ولو ترى إذ يتوفى الذين كفروا الملائكة الملائكة يضربون وجوههم وأدبارهم وذوقوا عذاب الحريق ذلك بما قدمت أيديكم أن الله ليس بظلام للعبيد This is, to, this is 48, 49 to 51 okay. So now 49 is in now Allah talks about those who their response to the encounter in Badr is that there were the whole group of what, what are you, the whole group of people in Medina which the Quran consistently calls the hypocrites, who remarked about once they heard that these people now, they've gone out after a, a Meccan caravan, and then the news reached them that in fact they are going to be fighting a Meccan army. This group in Medina started saying, These people are deluded. Why are they deluded? Why are they delusional? Oh, they're delusional because of their faith. They think they are going to they're going to beat a Meccan army, and it is their faith has made them delusional. You know. Try to imagine the, the Prophet ﷺ comes back to Medina after the victory, knowing fully well that there were a group of people that were going around saying, God, this is so crazy. These people are stupid. They're on a suicide mission. These people, their, their, their religion has made them think in a delusional and unrealistic fashion. The Prophet ﷺ doesn't ask Allah, who are these people? Well, actually, he knew quite a few of them because they were saying it publicly, and we know the names of quite a few of them. And if we ever do the Sira project, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that, some of the, the, the very interesting key figures because some of them were poets, and they composed very interesting poetry mocking Muslims and mocking their beliefs and so on. But no action is taken against them. Reflect upon that. I mean, when action is taken, it is taken against people that the Prophet believed were better Muslims than that. 
and they disappointed the prophet and there was social ostracism and we'll get to that so in other words people who should have known better but the hypocrites are in a consistent presence in Medina with constantly the stream of dissenting voices and we don't have any reports of arrests, imprisonments, banishments, exiles, torture. We don't even have stories of a group of hot-headed Muslims going and giving a good licking, a good beating to one of the hypocrites who were saying these people are delusional. What, they're crazy? They think they're going to win this battle? And they, in fact, won it. And the Quran simply comments about these people and says, you know, they and the kuffar have a horrible fate waiting for them. Because upon their death, the way that the the way that their soul will be received upon their death, in other words, when they're leaving, their, when they're dying, is that they will be, they will be struck, they will be, they're beaten. There's a movie, I think it was called, what was it called? It had, um, there's an actress called something more. Demi, Demi, right? Demi Moore. There was a movie where she, uh, she, the the guy she loves dies. Ghost. Mm-hmm. Ghost. Ghost. Okay. <laughs> and there is a scene in this movie where the evil guy dies. There's an evil guy that dies, and then the the the, the angels or the the whoever comes in to get his soul starts beating him. And when I saw this movie, I said, the person who made this movie must have read the Quran. <laughs> because there's, that image doesn't exist in the Bible. It's not in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's not in any religious text. It's only in the Quran that there are, the evil are going, the, the, upon death, it's going to be a terrifying process. And so, anyway, when I saw that, I said, okay, this person must ha- must have known someone who's Muslim or must have read the Quran or something. But it, it's, uh, if, if you haven't seen that, I mean, I, I don't even remember much about the movie other than, um, you know, other than that. But, you know, w- watch the scene. It, it w- you'll remember this ayah. If, watch, let, okay, let's take um, a five-minute break. Bismillah. So then, Subhanallah, the, the, the Quran in every surah will always go back to sort of the 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 paradigm of earlier biblical prophets as a frame of reference, I mean, in uh, anchoring, it's as an, as a, as a moral anchor 
um, for students of the Quran indefinitely. So you notice that then there is immediately in Anfal a reference in 52 and 53 and 54 to the example of Ali Fur'aun. Although it's it's a passing reference, but nevertheless in every surah, I mean of the longer surah, there is, it always takes us back to, even if very briefly, to a reminder of these pivotal narratives of earlier nations. And with and the, the reference to Ali Fir'aun or the people of Ali Fir'aun, which we know is a reference to the story of Moses and the, the, the Pharaoh as, and, as a paradigm of uh, injustice and oppression and, and arrogance and power. Um, and the point being underscored here is that that Allah's punishment was by the, the misdeeds that they committed to emphasize that بِأَنَّ اللَّهَ لَمْ يَكُمْ مُغَيِّرًا نَعْمَةً أَنْعَمَهَا عَلَى قَوْمٍ حَتَّى يُغَيِّرُوا مَا بِأَنْفُسِهِمْ وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ This is in 53. That understand that although Allah is the power in your victory and although Allah's will is in fact what will go through and take effect that there are rational causes and a moral law that Allah puts in the universe and that a moral failure of a people is because of their own will and their own course of actions and that if Allah the the um, it would help me just interest of time see how Muhammad as translates it he puts it simply, God would never change the blessings with which God has graced the people unless they change their inner selves and know that God is all hearing and all seeing. That if people enjoy a blessing, and this is it, it's simply a, a, a further or it's an elaboration upon the, upon the point we were making earlier that if people enjoy a blessing Allah doesn't take it away 
unless the failure is within the self at first. It's like in the context of Al-Anfal and after the Battle of Uhud, it's like saying, know that you're victorious today, but if you fail tomorrow, which in fact they did at Uhud, it will be because of immoral failure that you yourself willed upon yourselves. Okay. Did I forget anything? So, it moves on, 56 and 57, there's not, you know, not going to, um, that if, so, if you meet them in battle, be fearsome in battle. Fifty-eight and fifty-nine. وَإِنْتَ خَافَنَّ مِنْ قَوْمٍ خَيَانَةً فَنْبِذْ إِلَيْهِمْ عَلَى سَوَاءٍ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ الْخَائِنِينَ وَلَا يَحْسَبَنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا صَبَقُوا إِنَّهُمْ لَا يُعْجِزُونَ The important point about fifty-eight is that Although very early, and although Muslims have not really achieved much power, but the principle that Allah underscores is that, and as I said, there's sort of a, a, a civilizing of the rules of war at the very nascent stages, but nevertheless, that if you are in a situation where you fear betrayal, then if fear of betrayal does not permit you to you yourself to commit betrayal. The, the moral principle here is that if you are in a situation where you feel betrayal, which means, this expression means Ala sawat means like ala al adl or ala jahr, means that or as some, some put put it um, deal with them ala sawat so that So basically that then what you do is you treat them or you deal with them according to justice and without treachery. So you communicate your fear of betrayal or you terminate the relationship, whatever alliance you have with them, but you do not commit treachery. So fear of treachery does not allow you to act in a treacherous fashion. Let's see how 
So Muhammad Asa translates it, um, and if you have reason to fear treachery from people, uh, with, um, then cast it back at them in an equitable manner. Uh, cast it back at them, meaning put them on notice that whatever alliance, whatever covenant, whatever agreement you have with them, you, for reasons of that, it, because you don't trust them anymore, that it will no longer, there, that relationship is officially terminated. Um, it says in an equitable manner, meaning that it has to be, the principle is that you cannot deal with them according, you, you cannot betray them or you cannot commit treachery towards them. And let them not think those who are bent on their, yeah, and keep in mind then what is what follows this is uh, that there will be those who think that because you are bound by moral principles, you do not commit treachery, you do not betray. There will be those who will think that because of this, they can take advantage of you or that they can, in fact, um, put you at their mercy, that they can, in fact, uh, oppress you. But Allah simply says, if it's 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 sort of a, a, like a, a moral dynamic that if you trust in Allah, you abide by the principles, and do not worry about whether, in fact, you know people say that this puts you at a disadvantage, or puts you at their mercy or whatnot. And then, so the the the. the the principles being established here would take Muslims out of the, or would, for for those who say that they, these people are deluded by their faith, they would probably think, well, oh, these people are bound by, by moral principles, so surely they are at a disadvantage. Surely they are going to be vulnerable before their enemy. And that's why this is followed by then 60 لهم من قوة ومن رباط الخيل ترهبون به عدو الله وعدوكم. so the principle though is precisely because you are constrained by moral principles and ethics it is mandatory if Muslim, just if Muslims understood this about the Quran, it is mandatory that you prepare yourselves and be strong. So, in the same way that Allah says, well, you know, if you are defeated, if you are, look within, look at how you failed, because Allah follows rational causes. Allah put rules of causation. Here, Allah constrains you with morality. 
but you must be strong enough to comfortably live with the rules of morality. And how are you strong enough to live with the, by, with the rules of morality? Through doing your homework. And here, so prepare your... It's like make provisions. Do undertake all the rational reasons that you are obligated to take to achieve deterrence. تُرْهِبُونَ بِهِ عَدُوَ اللَّهُ وَعَدُوَكُمْ وَأَخَرِينَ مِنْ دُونِهِمْ لَا تَعْلَمُوهُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَهُمْ وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُهُمْ That this deterrence is to deter those, some enemies that you actually know and enemies that you don't even know. So it is... Yes, with Bedr, you went out and you engaged and you won the battle. But don't think that this is enough or this will work every time. Just because Allah aided you and made you victorious in Bedr, you must do your homework and prepare yourself and do undertake all the rational reasons to achieve the type of strength that will deter those who want to oppress you. And if you don't, then that's a failure. And it is truly remarkable. We are right after the Battle of Badr and a clear victory for Muslims. But then Allah says, وَإِن جَنَحُوا لِسِّلْمِ فَجْنَحْ لَهُ وَتَوَكَّلْ عَلَّهُ إِنَّهُ سَمِيعُ If you find that those people in fact don't want to oppress you and want to coexist with you peacefully, then by all means, seek peace. So war is not for its own purpose, but for a reason. And don't, don't make your excuse for not seeking peace. This is 62. Your fear of being betrayed. Well, what if I make peace with them and then they betray me? When it comes to, if you've done your homework, you've made yourself strong, you've made, you, you've, you've undertaken all the rational causal reasons for strength, then you are strong enough to enter peace. If, in fact, that is, and then you can rely on Allah for the things that you cannot anticipate, whether people will ultimately um, betray you or, or, or so on.
there is a huge difference between peace, making peace with someone, a peace out of strength, and between peace that is effectively surrendering to subjugation. Because this ayah was often exploited in a context where basically Muslims didn't want to fight for their rights, didn't want to defend the oppressed, didn't want to stand up for anything. And so they say, well, you know, if they seek peace, then we must in fact seek peace. There's a huge difference between peace and surrendering to oppression and subjugation. Peace means that you must be strong enough to make peace. You make peace out of strength, not weakness. Then this remarkable ayah 63. يا أيها النبي حسبك الله ومن اتبعك من المؤمنين. Okay. Then remember that the fact that you have this bond between you. ألفة القلب. ألفة القلب is when people unite over a common cause. And act with care towards one another. That's ulfat qalb. And Allah points to something that is true in history that even if you spent whatever wealth you have to achieve that type of unity, you wouldn't have achieved it. Note, note, I mean, it's a sad reality, but it's, it's a reality that we must understand and we must think about. We all grow up in a world where we completely understand that if someone wages an attack against, let's say, Britain, we immediately know, innately know, that if you attack Britain, then you've attacked the United States, you've attacked France, you've attacked Germany, you've attacked in the entire Europe, Europe, pretty much. Although, just a short while ago, in World War II, they were, you know, they went through the trauma that we're all too familiar with. But, that ulfa, a people with different religious faiths and that different languages, different histories, different cultural histories, social histories, come together and act in a, in a, in a we all at the same time know that you can't count on Muslim unity. You, you, we know that in fact you can attack one Muslim country and the, 
each Muslim country sort of takes its own, and this is how colonialism actually made inroads in, in the Muslim world. Why is it that at the most, even forget political interests, forget political realism, forget, we know that at a very basic moral level, that it is inconceivable that an attack would be waged against one European country, one white Europe country, without a whole host of other white countries coming to its defense. Where does the Ulfa come from? Whether we like it or not, contrary to political realism, it doesn't come from shared material interests. It comes from a shared moral outlook and a shared system of values, whether real or perceived. And without Allah's will, unity and the lack of unity is one sure sign whether Allah is with you or Allah has abandoned you. I'll leave it at that. But this, that's the unfortunate reality. Just that as Allah reminds the Prophet ﷺ, no amount of money would have brought these Arabs together. As today, no amount of money will bring Arabs together because they've abandoned Islam and abandoned their shared values. And of course, Western values are not going to bring Arabs, to get Arabs together, leave alone Muslims together. I mean, it's even that, that's even a harder goal. But for Muslims, the, the, the only source of shared values, common shared values, is the Quran. And how can you have shared values in the Quran if you don't understand the Quran? Sixty-four. Uh, by the way, I, I just I I want to want to leave it, but I I just can't resist commenting. No, ya ayyuhan nabiyyu, hasbuk Allah, umani tabaka min al mu'minin. Allah knows that this is such a small group, and they often wonder, how are we going to achieve the, 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 this cause of simply serving? And we're not even, and I believe at this point, all they knew is that they are serving God's cause, that they're committed to Islam, they're holding on to, to the rope of Islam. But beyond that, at this stage, the amount, the potential enemies are limitless. You know, Mecca and its allies and the Persian Empire and the Byzantine Empire, it's, it, from their vantage point, it must have looked like the entire world could be against them, possibly. And 
Allah's response, Allah simply comments on this by saying, Prophet of God, remember, Hasbukallah, Allah is enough for you. And the believers, the true believers who follow you. It's like saying, don't worry about the entire world. Just focus on yourself. Focus on who you are. Very simple, short ayah, but volumes of meaning. Okay, then 65 and 66. 65 and 66, if, if, you, if you've read any tafsir, you know that you, you, know, you get into, typically what you're told about them is that that Allah first decrees that if there are 20 Muslims, then they should take on 200. And there are, if there are 100 Muslims, they should take on 1,000. So if you're 20, fight 100, and, and your enemy is 100, then you should go into battle. And if there's 100 Muslims and your enemy is 1,000, then you should go into battle. And then that Allah abrogates this and says, well, okay, Allah now knows that, um, you know, maybe that's too much for you and Allah is going to make it easier upon you. So if there is a hundred of you, they take on 200, not a thousand. And if there's a thousand of you, they take on 2,000. This, although this interpretation is the interpretation you most often hear in the modern age, it's very problematic. I think theologically, very, very problematic. It's problematic because it's, it presupposes or presumes that at first, God said, 20, the odds are 20 against 100, 100 against 1,000. And then Allah says, that Allah now has realized that you are not this strong, or that Allah wants it to, to, to make it easier for you. So Allah now abrogated this rule and introduced a new rule. And the new rule is 100, the odds are 100 to 200, and 1,000 to 2,000. As if Allah didn't know that about any possible weakness that they suffered from, from the very beginning. Although that is the tafsir that you often hear in masjids and so on, but it is wrong. And the, the other reason that it's wrong is that these odds of 100 take on 200, 1,000 take on 2,000, so 1 to 2, right, are odds that 
the entire time of the Prophet in Arabia are odds that Muslims never encountered. Muslims always, in every single battle that they fought in Arabia at the time the Prophet was alive, the odds were much worse than that. So by this tafsir, they should have never gone into battle if in fact the abrogation thesis was correct. The interpretation is much more straightforward than that and much more simpler than that. Allah is saying, in principle, understand that it is possible for a small minority of 20 people to defeat much greater odds than themselves, in fact, 10 to 1. I believe that Allah is not just talking about battle, but Allah is talking about all moral struggles. That although the odds could be extremely not in your favor, you're Iman and Allah with you, and if you have your act together, you can overcome much greater odds than yourself. The entire, the entire ikhtilaf, the entire disagreement in tafsir is about al-an, this, this, word, this expression. Al-an, ankum. That, does it mean now Allah has changed the rule, abrogated the old rule, introduced a new one? Or does it mean simply Although in principle, the odds even could be as bad as 10 to 1. But in the meanwhile, in the time being, understand that in your current condition, even if the odds are 2 to 1, you, the odds are not as bad as 10 to 1, but the odds are more like 2 to 1, and you can handle these challenges. And that's simply the natural meaning of what these ayat are saying without having to resort to abrogation. Al-Razi has a long discussion in which he refutes the abrogation argument and says exactly what I just said, that what Allah is simply saying is that the odds are not as bad as 10 to 1, but even if they were, understand that still, with true faith and reliance on Allah and with Allah's aid, you're, you can chill, still achieve your objectives and your purposes. Okay. Then we get to 67, which is another tef- uh, um, travesty in tafsir. Okay. Notice, ما كان لنبي أن يكون له أسرة حتى يثخن في الأرض تريدون عرض الدنيا والله يريد الآخرة والله عزيز حكيم لولا كتاب من الله سبق لمسكم فيما أخذتم عذاب عظيم 
فكلوا مما غنمتم حلالا طيبا واتقوا الله إن الله غفور رحيم This is from 66 uh, sorry uh, 67 to 69 And actually let's add to no, no let, yeah let's, let's take it just to 69 All right So what it's saying what you learn in a lot of books on Sira, if you go to Martin Ling's, for instance, what it will tell you this ayah is saying is the following story. Is that in the Battle of Badr, Muslims captured a number of prisoners of war. And the Prophet ﷺ took shura as to what we should do as prisoners of war. And there were two camps. One camp represented by Umar ibn al-Khattab that said, well, the Meccans, when they capture our, if they capture, if they take our captives, they execute them. And since they put our captives to death, we should execute their captives. The second camp, represented by Abu Bakr, said, no, we can't execute them. After all, they're our folks, they're, they're, they're our relatives. we should take ransom. So basically that, that was the old system where the, the, your enemy pays you to get back their prisoners of war. Either exchange, you exchange prisoners of war or you ransom prisoners of war. But, as, but in most cases, Unfortunately, prisoners of war, and if you even just read the history of medieval practices, prisoners of war, unfortunately, were often put to death or enslaved. Um, quite often, that, that was what happened with them. Anyway, so then he, the, the Prophet ﷺ ultimately goes with the opinion of Abu Bakr and his camp of ransoming the prisoners of war and not executing them. And in a lot of the books that of Sira that you find around, and unfortunately even in mosques, what they teach our kids, is that the correct opinion of that according to this ayah, that the Allah comes and says the correct opinion was not Abu Bakr, but it was Omar. And that Allah says accepting ransom was wrong. And that if you look at 68, that, that Allah is saying it was wrong to take this money and that 
Now, the problem with this narrative, two things. Look at the actual language if you know Arabic. A prophet should not have captives What does Yuskhin mean? Yuskhin means to Al-Ithkhan is Kathrat Qatl or Al-Tughyan or Zuhur Fil-Ard or Al-Tamakun Al-Qur. So in other words, a prophet should not have prisoners in order to shed bloodshed on earth or in order to become almighty and powerful on earth or in order to cause oppression on earth. Now, if you read this in its most direct meaning, you'd say, okay, so how is it that ransoming the prisoners was ithkhan ard So according to what you read in the modern, like Martin Ling's and other places, so if he would have executed the prisoners, that would not be ithkhan, but ransoming doesn't make sense. How is not executing the prisoners somehow contrary to God's purposes of not causing bloodshed, not oppressing, not dominating, etc., etc., etc.? It's, do you guys follow what I'm saying? So, you go back and you need to study the, the, the matter because there's something very odd about a lot of these narratives, right? They're, they tell you that when he went with the, with the opinion of Abu Bakr of ransoming, that somehow that God came and said, no, 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 you shouldn't have accepted ransom. You should have gone was the execution option. And that, but at the same time, God says, you shouldn't have prisoners of war to be high and mighty on earth or to cause bloodshed on earth, which doesn't drive. The other thing is there are hadiths among the prisoners of war was a very important figure in Islamic history. And that figure was Al-Abbas, the Prophet's uncle. And in fact, we have a narrative that when um, um, we have a narrative that that when Umar ibn al-Khattab says, execute the prisoners, the Prophet ﷺ responded to Umar and said, Ya Aba Hafs, 
تأمرني أن أقتل العباس you're advising me to kill العباس who's from أهل البيت I mean we'll get to it and then Omar ibn al-Khattab according to these reports regrets giving that advice and says you know what got into me that I advised the Prophet to put someone like an Abbas to death what even complicates this matter is there's a narrative about Al-Abbas a number of these prisoners of war upon being captured some of them claimed that they were Muslim among those who said that I am actually Muslim is Al-Abbas himself, the Prophet's uncle. And according to a number of reports that he says, Inni kuntu muslima, that I, I was a Muslim in the battle of Badr when I was captured. And the Prophet says, Allahu a'lamu bi islamik only Allah knows you know what is in your heart if, if it is in fact that you are a Muslim then Allah will reward you however he tells him but however I have to go by the outside appearance. I don't, what is in your heart is between you and your God. But I have to rely on outside appearances. And the Prophet ﷺ tells Abbas to ransom his, himself, ransom two nieces, and ransom a man called Udbah bin Amr, who was a mawla of Abbas, a, an ally of Al-Abbas, and a dependent on Al-Abbas. Um, the, the two um, nieces, sons of his brother, and they're nieces, right? Called nieces? Nephew. Huh? Nephew. Nephew, yeah. It's Nofal ibn al and Uqail ibn Abi Talib. So anyway, so Nofal and Uqail and uh, Utbah bin Amr are all people that Ibn al-Abbas uh, uh, ransoms and they're released. So according to this narrative that people are taught, then Ibn al-Abbas should have been executed. And we have an entire problem, and I'll show you that it, there's also problem with, with the text itself in a second. Because, look, look at 71, or 70 and 71. Ya ayyuhan nabi, qul li man fi aydikum min al-asra, in ya'lam, in ya'lam, Allahu fi qulubikum khayran, yu'tikum khayran mimma ukhda minkum, wa yakhfir lakum, wallahu ghafurun rahim. وَإِنْ يُرِيدُ خِيَانَتَكَ فَقَدْ خَانُوا اللَّهَ مِنْ قَبْلِ 
فأمكن منهم والله عليم حكيم so 70 and 71 says tell the prisoners if Allah knows that you are well-intentioned Allah will compensate you for the money you spent ransoming yourself Allah will reward you or will give you better than what you've spent and if they want to betray you understand that well you know they they've betrayed God and yet God allowed you to capture them so in other words so what is 71 talking about is saying don't let the fear of betrayal prevent you from releasing them because in the same way that Allah allowed you to capture them this time Allah will allow you to defeat them again does this sound like what you would say if you wanted to execute someone to tell them oh you know you should have executed them but tell them you know don't worry if if Allah knows that your hearts are good Allah will compensate you for the money you spent in ransom and you know don't don't let the fear of betrayal prevent you from releasing them it doesn't make any sense it doesn't make sense if you have if you don't realize or if you don't if you're not aware the, the the reason I'm spending so much time on this is that this is in the mind of so many modern Muslims this narrative about all oh, the the Omar Abu Bakr and the Omar Allah came and said Omar was right and that the, the the captives should have been executed not ransomed is so firmly established that I found it taught in every Islamic school or you know just avoided and of course you know the the ignorance of of this day and age uh, in the whole isis and daesh movement they, they started executing every time they would capture someone they would execute them relying on this narrative it's nonsense it's nonsense and what the ayah is simply saying is and and this whole narrative about Abu Bakr saying this and Omar saying that and then Allah when you look into the actual narratives and their chains of transmission you find a, a tons of problems and that they got into the polemics about they're trying to prove that Omar was the the, the, the pro Omar polemics, the polemics pro Omar meaning the polemics that try to defend Omar against criticisms of what the what the the early Shia polemics against Omar, and the invention of pro Omar traditions to try to defend him, and then you find. The, the the transit plagued by this whole thing anyway so what Allah is simply saying is in the same way that there was a danger 
about the spoils of war becoming a big issue, there was also a danger about the money because when there were prisoners of war, according to the old Arab practice, is that each prisoner of war is the direct responsibility and charge of the person who captured him. And so the person who captured him would name the ransom price and would receive the ransom as his own private profit. The Prophet ﷺ came and said, no, the ransom will go into the public treasury and will be treated as part of the, the fiat, generally, subject to the one-fifths rule, and it is no longer the case that just because you captured this person that you are entitled to the profits. Because obviously, if I you know, captured, let's say, I have a prisoner of war, and I'm the ransom, I, I'm going to put the ransom in my pocket, I'm going to make much more money than if the ransom goes to a public treasury, and then you know, one-fifth goes as a tax, and then the rest is distributed among you know, everyone else in society. My share is going to be very small. And so there were, especially the young fighters, they were very unhappy about that. And they said, well, you know, we're not going to make a lot of money out of this. We, we've fought, we've captured, or, you know, someone who's particularly brave captured two or three people and, you know, instead of having money that's going to uh, put me in a, in a good position for a number of years, you know, my share is going to be very small, although I've did the fighting and I've did the capturing and so on. And similarly, there, were ten there was tension and there was pushback on this point. And Allah comes and says, prisoners of war is not about enrichment and power. In fact, understand that prisoners of war, are, they're not about a property or ownership. That when Allah talks about what is in their hearts, deal with prisoners of war as an investment into the future. How you deal with them is their impression of Islam and Muslims. And Allah goes as far as talking to the Prophet and say, tell them that Allah is telling you, if you are sad about money lost, <laughs> then you shouldn't be because Allah will compensate you. But focus about what is, so it's, a, it's an reorientation towards the status of prisoners of war itself.
And this is in direct response to those who said, don't release them. Don't allow them to be ransomed because if you ransom them or if you allow them to ransom themselves, they'll just join, go back, and they'll join the Meccan army and fight against us again. And Allah responds to this and says, don't worry about that. Rely on Allah. Trust in Allah. And in fact, in fact, uh, there were individuals who were ransomed and did go back and join the Meccan army and fought against Muslims again. So it, in fact, it did happen. It's not, it wasn't a theoretical possibility. Although that is a khiana, that is a betrayal because by the customs and rules of that age, if you, if, you were released or ransomed, you morally, you should, or as a matter of chivalry, you are not supposed to join, to fight that enemy again, which a number of them did, did violate. violate. Um, Further notice, there is another narrative, this is just as a, I don't know if it's a sidebar, or, but I don't know if, 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 you, if um, you guys have read um, uh, the Sira or any Sira book, you, you would have encountered the, an incident where after the Battle of Badr, um, the Prophet um, Zainab, the Prophet's daughter, had was married to a non-believer at that time. And she herself was, was living in Mecca with her husband. This is the prophet's daughter from Khadija. And the, the famous story when among the, 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 the um, when the ransom money is being paid, she sends a necklace the, the prophet recognized as Khadijah's. And when he sees this necklace, the minute he sees his necklace, his face changes, and everyone notices that he became very sad. To, basically, in the memory of the necklace reminded the prophet, of Khadijah. And And then ultimately, he he leaves the decision up to the the people in charge, but he tells them that it's he finds it distasteful to accept Khadijah's necklace 
from that was sent by his daughter to free her husband. And they, they decide to release him, Mannan, so meaning with that for, for uh, nothing in return. This narrative about the execution, it would, um, it would have meant that he would have been one of the people executed as well, which just runs into so many problems as if people just don't bother to vet the entire plane of evidence with all its complexity. I hope I, I didn't overburden you with details about this, but it's just because of how often you hear it, it just deserved this type of, okay. All right. Then, then the last part of Surah Al-Fan, what time is it? The last part of Surah Al-Fal moves on to deal with another moral problem that deserves careful attention. There were a group of people that had converted to Islam. Some of them wanted to migrate and join the Prophet in Medina, but were prevented, forcibly prevented from doing so. But there were others that had converted, and the reason they did not migrate was because of the sacrifice involved. So they became Muslim, but they kept their Islam a secret because if they, it came out in public, the Meccans would have persecuted them. They kept their Islam a secret and did not migrate because they knew it would have meant sacrificing all that they would own. Or in some cases, breaking up their families because as we know in many cases children would migrate but the parents would not parents would migrate children would not husband would migrate but wife wouldn't wife would migrate but husband wouldn't so on part of the problem is a number of these individuals when it came to the time of war mecca said, join our army. And they couldn't say no, because if they would have said no, and they didn't have a good excuse, Mecca would have suspected them. In fact, we know that a number of them, that among the things that Mecca was sort of doing, is that after the Hijra, there was sort of an attitude of suspicion about covert converts or people sympathetic to Muhammad. And if you were accused of that, whether justly or unjustly, it would often destroy your life if you were accused of a being a sympathizer. And so a number of these people ended up in the very problematic position 
of serving in the army, in the Meccan army, in fighting Muslims. So there are groups, there are converts that are coerced, converts that are not coerced but didn't join the army. I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, not coerced and didn't join the army. And converts that converted, not coerced, again, secret faith, but did join the army. And 72 comes and says, Now, understand these social principles of social ethics. As to those who became Muslim but did not do the hijrah, so they did not join your polity, they're Muslim, but they belong to a different party. You and them are not awliya. Awliya means you are not one allies. It was the first clear statement that the political, economic, social sacrifice or the lack of willingness to make that sacrifice has very real consequences. You are not part of the Muslim polity. Nevertheless, because of the bond of religion, if there is a situation where they are being oppressed and they ask for your help, you should help them unless you are prevented from helping them by a treaty that you have with the with a particular group of people so in other words if you have a treaty with mecca and part of this treaty is that you don't interfere in the affairs of mecca then that treaty will trump the obligation to help them because they should have migrated. And, but beyond oppression, the choice of polity is very significant. Now, this is, it was clear at this point that Muslims were defining a polity of their own which demanded loyalty and that that loyalty will often define your rights and duties as part of this polity or not being a part of this polity. Okay. And that it is not acceptable to say well, yeah, I am a Muslim, but I really can't afford the sacrifice of joining my brothers and sisters in their Muslim ummah and helping them working a part of that Muslim ummah because I have my own 
interests or I have my own circumstances. It's not an excuse. So, وَالَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بَعْضُهُمْ أَوْلِيَاءُ بَعْضٍ إِلَّا تَفْعَلُوهُ تَكُونُ تَكُونَ فِتْنَةٌ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَفَسَادٌ كَبِيرٌ And understand that wala between a Muslim and a Muslim and their understanding that they are a single ummah and that there is no wala a Muslim and non-Muslims cannot be allies in the sense of have a sense of unity that for instance you see uh, in Europe right now European Union and if Muslims lose sight of that look at what the Quran says are the is the consequence of this that is the true fitna and great corruption now subhanallah it took us centuries to see the truth of this ayah. Because for Muslims at the time, I'm sure they looked at this and say, really, fitnatun fil ard wa they're going to be fitnatun fil ard wa fasadun kabir, there's going to be a, a major fitna on earth and great corruptions if Muslims lose sight of the fact that there are a single ummah bonded by a union with one another and that this bond is a, a moral ethical bond between them that unites them that if they lose sight of that it's it's a great fitna on earth and and great corruption on earth and I'm sure that for Muslims receiving it and fell at the time, it seemed like an exaggeration. For us, can you find a better description of the state of chaos Muslims are in today? I mean, the, the, the loss of when Muslims can so easily find themselves, each Muslim country is allied with whoever you know tickles their fancy some muslim countries are allied to france some muslim countries britain some muslims countries the u.s some muslims countries israel other muslims countries russia other muslim countries china and the one thing that doesn't exist is a bond between muslims one another and precisely that description Fitna and fasad fil ard is the most fitting description of it. Because of that, because of this, it becomes possible for Arabs to say, "We, the threat of a Persian, the Persian threat is worse than Israel. We we should forget, you know, sell the Palestinians down the." sell Jerusalem and sell the Palestinians because we fear the Persians and the Persians to hate the Arabs and the, the Saudis to bomb the Yemenis and you know the, the 
horrible chaos you find in the Muslim world. Allah warned us that this is precisely the type of moral decay where you no longer recognize what bonds you, what types of values bond you to one another, will occur. Then Allah says, وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَهَاجَرُوا وَجَاهَدُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ وَالَّذِينَ آوُوا وَنَصَرُوا أُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الْمُؤْنُونَ حَقَّ لَهُمْ مَغْفِرَةُ وَرِزْقٌ كَرِيمٌ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا وَهَاجَرُوا وَجَاهَدُوا مَعَكُمْ فَأُولَٰئِكَ مِنْكُمْ وَأُولُو الْأَرْحَامِ بَعْضُهُمْ أَوْلَىٰ أَوْلَىٰ بِبَعْضٍ فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عَلِيمٌ So 75, this is 74 and 75. So the bond is between those who believe and take action consistent with their belief. Those who believe and do the hijrah and stand with one another in jihad and support one another, they are awliya ba'd. There is a firm bond between them. Now, notice at 75, says those who believe and migrate and do jihad this all of you are one but then it says now this has given quranic commentators a lot of pause Let's take the, 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 the range of opinions first. Okay. So one of the things that happened is that when the Mus- Muslims migrated to Medina, the Muhajirun and the Ansar, the Prophet created a system of Mu'akhah between a Muhajir and an Ansari. So the prophet would say, you are the brother of the, the, you Muhajir, or you Ansari are the brother of this Muhajir. So you two will treat one another as if brothers. Or you are, you such and such, you're the sister of, sister this is the sister of this woman. So the bond went between men and women. And it was a system of, as now that this has been declared your brother or your sister, you became responsible for their welfare. So it became your responsibility to help them, to look after them, to check on them, to visit them, to integrate them into society. So it was a brilliant way of integrating refugees and natives. But the Mu'akha went a step further in that a lot of the Ansaris said, you are such a brother or sister to me that not only do I, will I treat you as if a brother or sister, but you should inherit me like a brother or sister. So they would will and decree 
in, in some reports, it's will and decree. Other reports that it was part of the law or that of Medina. That, okay, if I die, you inherit me. If you die, I inherit you. And many commentators said what 75 did is that it says there is a moral and political and ethical bond between you. But inheritance should be according to blood, not according to who you consider to be your brother. So many thought, many argued that this ayah abrogated the law of inheritance between those who were decreed brothers and sisters in fraternity or sorority. The problem with this view is that the mu'akha, that the, the all likelihood that there was no law that said that just because this was declared to be your brother or sister that you had to inherit each other, that the way the inheritance things work is that they would basically write in their will and that this matter was taken care of by the revelation on inheritance and, and wills and testaments. So in other words, and so that this seems to be a very indirect way of addressing an inheritance problem when we have clearly phrased inheritance revelation. So to say, is, is, is to say, and blood relations should look for out for each other. That's all it's saying. And it seems to be a very roundabout way to abrogate a, a, a legal institution or legal practices, if you will, which gave birth to the second perspective. The second perspective basically said that all this ayah is saying is you should strenuously, actively work to recognize the moral and ethical bond between those who believe and act on this belief. Those who do the hijra join and make the commitment to jihad, jihad in the sense of struggle, they become you and them become one of from one and the same. You become allies. The bond between between you is firm and unbreakable. But remember that this in no way replaces or otherwise take away from or deprecate the duties and obligations that exist because of blood obligations. So in other words, it, in some of you will be tempted because Allah knows us very well, 
Some of you will be tempted to say, well, my real brothers are my brother in Islam and I don't care a hoot about my blood brother. And Allah is saying, well, if, if that's the way you think, no, that's wrong. Your blood brother continues to matter in the same way that your Islam brother continues to matter. So one doesn't replace the other. I'm just curious to see what Muhammad Asad did with this. So Muhammad Asad says, uh, and so for those who henceforth come to believe and who forsake the domain of evil and strive hard in God's cause together with you, these two shall belong to you. And they who are thus closely related have the highest claim on one another in accordance with God's decree. Oh, he has a long footnote. I don't have time to read it. Uh, anyway, um, I'm not sure from from the translation. Although I, I anyway. Um, so, okay, let, let's pause now and go back to the entire message of Surah Al-Fal. Notice what Surah Al-Fal now does after Badr. In many ways, it's an antidote to arrogance and hubris. It comes in and says, no, it is not about a victory. It is not about prestige. It is not about your reputation in the neighborhood. It is about understanding that it is all about your relationship to Allah. Whatever success you've achieved, it is with Allah's aid and through Allah's power. Your attitude towards this victory should be gratitude and reflection within. Reflection to make sure that your motives are your moral core, your ethics are pure. Just because Allah aided you, don't lose sight of the fact that if you allow the ego to creep in, if you allow arrogance to creep in, if you allow greed to creep in, if you start thinking that this is your achievement, your success, your brilliance, your bravery, and the lesson of an anfal is not just about warfare, because you can apply the same logic to someone who's become a lawyer, someone who's become a doctor, someone who's become an engineer. If you start saying, 
you know, I'm God's gift to the world. I'm, 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 I'm such a brilliant. Then you can count on Allah's blessings being withdrawn from that. And when that happens, you can count on moral decay. And the sign of moral decay is the lack of furqan, the lack of ability to discern. Things become confused and obfuscated and cloudy in your conscience and your mind. You're no longer sure about what is beautiful and what is ugly. You could do what is truly ugly and think it's beautiful. Or you could encounter the beautiful and not recognize it as beautiful. And Now, if you are anchored in this and you struggle against the self, you will realize that it is not just that the blessing is in a battle fought and a battle won, but the blessing is in the construction, the, the anatomy of your community itself. If you are united, if you put as a priority your value system, your sense of ethical values, and, under, and understand that a commitment to God will often require you because God comes between a person and their impulses and their desires will often require you to make serious sacrifices then Allah is with, with Allah is with you and Allah will prevent or Allah will help you avoid the fitna that ultimately causes moral decay and moral collapse. And then Surat Al-Anfal makes clear that commitment and principle matters that the obligations of Muslims, What this is not about ransom, this is not about spoils of war, this is about a moral bond between the members of this community. A, a Muslim, a members of community who have invested serious sacrifices in hijrah and jihad out of principle. And that if Muslims lose sight of the fact that this is about being a people with a principled message, 
that, again, Allah warns of, you will confront a state of decay, the blessing of Allah in which you are all able to unite and come together as a single ummah evaporates. And it is astounding that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and warns at at the very end, underscores all of this by saying, it's, it's like saying, your focus should be on being, it's like being invested in each other's well-being, caring for one another because of what unites you, not looking to have what not or transcending material objectives that could bring you together or cause you to separate. So at, at the very end, it, it, it comes and says, it's not the fear, it's not the ransoms, it's not the money, it is the principle of sacrifice and commitment that defines your brotherhood and your sisterhood. It's like saying, be committed to those you sacrifice and they sacrifice, and be committed to those who sacrifice. And again, Allah warns us of the consequences of losing sight of that. So being a people who instead of defining our relationships in terms of who is the most giving Muslim, the most sacrificing Muslim, our value system, our sense of worth or lack of worth, uh, replacing it with, you know, social status, class status, racial status, that, that is the true moral decay and moral failure. And I think that is Surah Al-Anfal. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah, that was absolutely incredible. Again, I feel like the last half an hour I've been like cramming (laughs) to take my notes. So um, thank you so much for invaluable understanding of the of the Quran um, so I let let me we're gonna do Q&A next time so if you guys have questions definitely send them to me um, grace at usuli.org um, for highlights from today um, there's so much but let's just start with um, so you mentioned that Jerusalem has been the thermometer of the state of the Muslim Ummah um, that the battles that were that were presented here, these were for Allah and for you yourself to know and differentiate um, good from bad and revealing the self to the self. 
Um, did you, were you about caring about the spoils of war? Did you run away in battle? Um, these are, are challenges for each person um, and they're deeply introspective challenges and criteria for people to really understand themselves. Um, that this is about your attitude about material gain um, and the whole um, discussion about how um, the radical change, that there's no more pillaging. It's um, about spoils of war being part of a, a public treasury where a fifth of that goes to the orphans. One fifth. What did I say? Oh. One fifth. Okay, sorry. One fifth goes to the orphans, the destitute, the refugees, etc. Um, and the it was, you know, beautiful. The um, Of course, the stories of how the Prophet gave everything away, um, and we'll, inshallah, learn more about that in Sirah, um, and how this was really about beginning the civilizing, um, of the civilizing practices of warfare, and um, how it, we were taken also back to this fundamental issue about you plan and Allah plans, and this, you know, whether we understood or the Muslims understood that this was attacking a caravan or actually going to war, that God knew what was in your heart um, for, for those early Muslims. Um, and the lesson being, you know, if you are with Allah, then Allah is with you. But if you are about material gains, then Allah is not with you. Um, that Allah's interventions are in your heart and psychology and subjective perception of reality. That Allah often um, will give you the courage, the heart, the optimism, and the right attitude. Um, but then oftentimes we are the ones who allow shaitan's whisper to come in. And we let those whispers create doubt and Allah um, allow Allah's barakah to be taken away. And so to be aware of our role in losing the power of Allah's intervention. Um, if we are put to the test or to a challenge that we must stand firm and to remember Allah constantly um, and just the power of constant dhikr in any battle, not just warfare, and that a sure way to lose the blessings of Allah is to focus on that material gain instead of what unites you um, and, your, and your brethren. Um, if you do that, if you focus on the material gain, then you'll find that you will begin fighting or splintering over um, egotistical issues, ultimately, which will lead to um, inevitable moral defeat. We're told and warned, you know, do not be like your opponents where it's all about prestige and social acceptance or material wealth or gain or um, appearance. Um, if those are the things that drive you, then shaitan is your partner. Um, and the earmark of that is... Um, you know, negative energy, anger, grievance, lack of peace. Um, the point about the treatment of hypocrites at, in the time of the prophet compared to now, I thought was extremely powerful. Um, and the analogy to Pharaoh, that Allah will not take away blessings from a people um, unless there is a failure within first. So we, the lesson, you know, you might be victorious today, but if you fail tomorrow, it's because of your own moral fail failure in some way, which is um, clearly the lesson from Badr, Battle of Badr to Battle of Uhud. And that Allah constrains us um, with morality and we must be strong enough to live by the rules of morality. We have to work hard to prepare ourselves. Um, if we do our homework, then um, then we can, you know, then we should rely on Allah. But you know, in the example of the Battle of Badr, Allah's help was there, but that's not always, it's not always gonna be that.
that way we have to we have to do the hard work and we have to do the preparation um, if an enemy wants peace then we should seek peace that war is not for its own purposes and there's a difference between um, peace from strength and peace from weakness and subjugation the point about unity and that you made that you know the sign that Allah is with you or not is is your unity and the point that Obviously today, no amount of money would bring Muslims together. Um, and that we have to come together on common shared values. Our common shared value must be the Quran. And how can you do that if you don't understand the Quran? Um, and the very beautiful um, verse 64, Allah knows that you are a small group, but Allah is enough for you. Um, so in principle, it's possible for a small group to defeat all moral struggles despite all odds. Um, with as long as you have your iman, your faith, um, and Allah is with you, you can defeat anything. And then the whole discussion about the treatment of prisoners of war, and the point being that prisoners of war are not about enrichment or power or property or ownership or material gain, and that this reoriented the whole status of prisoners of war, and the point that this is really an investment in the future and their impression. And it's lovely that's, you know, really like you see the example of them being treated with dignity and, and humanity. And then I think from there, that, that's where my, my notes stopped and then the, the powerful summary to the end. So, Very good. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. This was so amazing, um, you know, of course, together with our, the whole session last time. Um, I'm looking forward to coming together again um, is today Tuesday? <laughs> okay. Um, on Saturday, inshallah, where we can cover all of this again and get into the, the questions and answers. So thank you so much for being with us. Um, I hope you guys enjoy the rest of the week. Um, great way to start the new year, alhamdulillah, with, with this surah. Inshallah, we'll see you on Saturday. Take care. Stay healthy. Stay well. Assalamu alaikum.